0: And greetings, everyone. You're listening to KYRS Medical Expo, Can 88.1 and 92.3 FM. This is Art Hour. I'm your host, Mike Malsom. I'm your other host, Eric Woodard. And we are here with a former
1: student of mine from we won't say how far back in the day, uh, but a former student of <laughs> mine and a current documentary filmmaker, Mike Beagle. Mike, welcome. Hey, thanks, hey, Mike. Mike. Yeah. Oh, you're Mike. Oh. I didn't have your mic on. Let's try that again. <laughs> Mike Beagle. How's he going? Oh, there he is. All right. <laughs> <Awesome>. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So, uh, I mean, you're, you're a documentary filmmaker. You're the first filmmaker we've had on the show. So let's just kind of start with what you're working on right now. And then kind of what I'd like to talk about is... Uh, the path you you uh, went to get here, because I know it's not, a, um, it's not a straight path. It's not a, a path that necessarily anybody else would have followed. But uh, first thing, w- what are you working on? What are you doing here in town? What can we expect to see from you?
2: So I've been working uh, for the last eight months or so on a documentary, a feature documentary about the history of climbing uh, in Spokane. It's called The Freed, um, and it features all sorts of uh, climbers that kind of f- formed what is known as modern rock climbing, Um, especially after World War II. And it started with, you know, uh, Bill Fix and Joe Collins. And then those two guys raised and trained uh, two other guys, uh, Chris Kopsinski and John Ross Kelly. And they have those two dudes just tore it up and did so many amazing things and really were a huge inspiration to the uh, burgeoning climbing scene in Spokane Um, through the 80s and 90s what followed in their heels was an explosion of sport climbing and now we have all sorts of indoor climbing and sport climbing and it's really it's a huge community and that's that's what I'm looking to do with the film is to really share the story of uh, everything that's gone on here it's so rich and I think a lot of people aren't aware of how extensive and how world-class the, the climbers coming out of Spokane have been and just how beautiful the stories are and everything that everyone's done. So that's what I'm doing.
1: So I'm assuming that you were involved in climbing, not not filming the climbers, just involved in climbing in the first place. So what brought you to the project? How did, how did you go from, uh, I mean, did you start climbing in high school? or what, 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 How did you get into that?
2: Yeah, so in the sixth grade, uh, I, I went and learned how to climb out of mountain gear. Um, with my buddy Tom, and uh, from there, um, there there wasn't really a lot of opportunities for indoor climbing. I mean, there's the wall at Mountain Gear. Um, we would go out there, and then we'd go out to Minnehaha, and there's this old guide called the uh, "A Guide to uh, Climbing on Spokane Rocks. I can't remember the exact title of it, um, but it was written by Bob Loomis and Nancy Loomis, and then Wild Walls opened, and I started climbing there a ton, joined the climbing team, um, and was climbing with people like, you know, Todd Myers and Johnny Quicachia and Spencer Davey and all these guys who were really at that time uh, developing really, really awesome routes and sending routes that some older folks, uh, you know, just a few years older had been setting. Um, And so that was my background. And then I left Spokane for, for college and then went into the film scene in LA for some years but I came back this summer I've been living in Portland for the last seven years I came back to Spokane to visit family and I was looking through uh the family house in the the basement and I found this old you know guide to climbing in Spokane and I was like wow this is really great and I (laughs) saw this this indices of of first ascents, and it was you know a, a group of basically like eight climbers had 90% of the first ascents and it was just like it's a beautiful piece of history and immediately I was like oh man I gotta I gotta make a film about this and then one thing led to another it turns out you know Bob was old friends with my dad and and Nancy is friends with my mom and got got me connected with them and after talking with them then it kind of opened up and started talking with uh John and Chris and and Marty and Timon at Wild Walls and and talked with Paul Fish at Mountain Gear, and they, but everyone seems it just everyone wants to tell the story and share the story and hop on board, and that's where it started.
1: Now, had you been looking for a documentary to make at the time? Had you made documentaries before, or was this something that just sort of was a brand new thing that sort of fell in your lap and it took you on a completely different direction? Just that. Okay, it <laughs> fell in your lap and it took you on a completely. So, what were you doing at the time?
2: Um, so, for a year prior, I had been working on uh, an investigatory documentary. Um, about a a company um, that was uh, involved in um, uh, uh, cooperating rather um, uh, contentiously um, with some uh, federal agencies um, and they were caught doing it. And um, there was quite a bit of hubbub about it and a number of lawsuits filed. There's a national class action suit. There was a suit filed by the attorney general over this. And so that film is something that I had been following just pretty much 24 seven for about a year and gotten getting heavily involved in that. And I'm still working on that project. Um, it should probably come out, um, sometime in the fall, um, early fall next year. Um, and so I had just been doing that, and uh, but I had started climbing intensely again, and I had just finished uh, in March uh, a campaign to help save a climbing gym in Portland, as well as protect a uh, critical watershed from the expansion of a uh, light rail uh, system in Portland, mm. the Max Line. They were going to expand it out into the Fanta Creek Watershed. and And so I did an advocacy campaign to make people know that, you know, this is kind of a kind of a problem, and and that's that. And that's where I really began to get involved with um, uniting my love for climbing with filmmaking and going from the short form uh, works to feature length.
0: So I'd be uh, interested, Mike, when did you get interested in the actual filmmaking? We had talked earlier uh, before coming up to the station that you actually went to film school, um, Mm -hmm. and did you get a degree in that or just you kind of dabbled in it and thought, man, this is kind of what I want to pursue.
2: Well, in high school at Eric's in Eric's class, I was taking (laughs) pictures uh, for the yearbook and I, I, had been, um, I started developing photos when I was, uh, I don't know, like nine years old or something like that. Um, in, in my aunt and grandma's dark room, um, and so it was just something I loved to do. But at that point in time uh, in high school, I was very much on a track to be either a marine biologist or ethnopharmacologist. And so I was like all science all the time. That's what I wanted to do. And then uh, now, hold on. What, what
1: yeah. is an ethnopharmacologist? I'm sorry to interrupt. Oh, yeah, for but... sure.
2: Ethnopharmacologist is basically uh, um, uh, a botanist that goes into the, the jungle or remote regions and analyzes plants for potential medicinal value. Oh, okay. And then, but specifically you, you liaise with um, local tribes and medicine men and, and see what they... See what they've been
1: using already. Yeah, mm-hmm. okay. yeah. Huh, interesting. Yeah. Okay, yeah. so you were on the track to do one of those <laughs> two things.
2: Yeah, and then um, sophomore year, uh, my brother was killed in an avalanche in the Wallowas. He was uh, 19, he was a sophomore at uh, uh, Whitman College. I was a sophomore at LC at the time. And, uh, and it, I mean, obviously that really, like me for a spin really kind of messed me up and and my mom at the time was teaching educational television and now this was the days before iPhones and like really smart quick software like you can't so back- this was late
1: 90s right yeah yeah yeah. yeah. It was,
2: this was 99. <laughs> 99 99 okay. yeah so you know it was a lot of effort to make a little video so her whole uh mm. crew at the time Um, we're like, dude, we want to do something to help you out, man. Like get through this thing. Um, what can we do to help? And I was like, well, let's make a memorial video. So we sat down and took uh, like a day, day and a half, um, you know, crew of like seven people. And it was like, I think probably 18 hours total, to make a seven minute Memorial video, basically a slideshow that you can like (laughs) automate and (laughs) iPhoto makes it in like no time, Uh, right? Yeah. But we did that and we showed it at the Memorial and like I heard gasps, I heard cries, I heard people protesting it, like how dare you show shots of snowboarding after he's been killed in an avalanche to people like smiling and laughing like, oh. So it was this whole range of emotions going on. And I was like, wow, for the first time, I found a way to communicate all the complex feelings that I'm having right now. Mm -hmm. And I did it in one fell swoop with, I just, there it is. And I was like, this is what I'm doing the rest of my life. And so at that point I was like, yep, this is it. And that's where I started. And so when I left LC, I went down to L.A. I was rejected by all my colleges um, because I was such a stellar student in high school. <laughs> uh, I went down there and schmoozed around. And, and, you know, I don't know if it was my schmoozing or like a, a really friendly person getting me an awesome letter of recommendation. I'm sure it was a little bit of both. But I ended up getting in uh, to LMU the spring, that, that following spring. So I only missed one semester coming in.
0: Uh, so that's yeah. where it started. And um, so doing the film through the college, um, what what aspect of that, maybe the formal training or introduction to that, um, is, is the most important uh, as you're doing the work now? I'm, and I'm saying that for because uh, there's a, a growing number of high school students that are really interested in becoming filmmakers. My son was one of them a while back. So, I mean, what, what is it? What does that benefit by doing that versus just going out and learning the ropes with a very professional person? I've
1: heard Mike answer this question before, so I kind of can't wait for oh. him to answer it uh,
0: well, so
2: I'd say the number one value of, of going to film school uh would be to learn how to navigate bureaucracy. I'd say because you know there's a lot of red tape involved, and you know it filmmaking. If you do filmmaking by the book um, and you get everything you want to do the thing that you envision, it's real expensive. And the reality is most of the time you're not going to have the resources to do that. So you've got to find some creative way to make that happen. And usually what stands in your way is certain bureaucratic loopholes, Mm -hmm. especially within the academic setting. So it was kind of learning how to do that. Um, I think the other, the, the second most important thing is learning how to be a team player and cooperate in large communities of people. Um, because you know filmmaking is, is really hard to do on your own. It's darn near impossible. Um, so it forces you to, to find a way to communicate and cooperate with other people's input. Um, and and I, I would say that would be that.
1: Um, well, Mike, that was a much more diplomatic answer than <laughs> I, uh, the one I heard you give a couple of months ago. I mean, you basically said you, you could have done it without film school, yeah. and you would have saved a lot of money and you might have gotten um, a, a, a bigger jump start on what you really wanted to do. <laughs> yes, this is true. <laughs> well, you know, and,
0: and, and honestly, that is the answer that I hear more often than, than it was worth it. We, even when we had Travis uh, Twite on as a chef, he went to culinary school in Portland, as a matter of fact, and we asked the same kind of question. Mm-hmm. And then my son was going to go to Bozeman and study film there, because they suppose they had a good program. But then he met, a friend that's, you know, fairly successful, he's in the business anyway, he says, well, you know, the people we hire, the people that can do the work. So it doesn't necessarily mean that that's coming out of school with a degree. It's just people that have gone in and learned the software and how to navigate all that stuff that you just talked about. So I think that's good advice to hear both sides of that.
1: So what what is the thing that you get from a film school that you can't get from just making guerrilla-style films with your phone? Hmm. Or is there anything?
2: That's a good question.
1: Because one of the things, and as you're thinking about this, Mm -hmm. I think um, it's a lot harder to tell a good story than it is to teach somebody to be a technician as a director of photography or something like that. So um, I'm just wondering if it's, I mean... Even now with YouTube, I mean, it seems like you can pick up so much technique. Is there something that if there's somebody listening out there who's thinking about going to film school, is is there a reason that they would need to go that they couldn't get that anywhere else?
2: Um, I would say probably the one thing that that you can't get elsewhere that um, film school can really uh, accelerate um, is the access to resources. Mm. You know, so like. At the end of the day, um, the the big difficulty in trying to be an independent filmmaker on any level is the amount of noise that's out there. Because of YouTube and Instagram and all all the various digital platforms out there, anyone can go and make something. And at the end of the day, you know, being a solid technician doesn't really matter anymore. It doesn't matter if you're shooting a film with your iPhone or some camera that's eight years old and is a piece of crap. Uh, What matters is story. And so once yeah. you've made a good story, you know, it's a matter of getting it out there. And what film schools can can provide is they usually have departments. I know LMU certainly did. My films were garbage in college, <laughs> so this really didn't apply to me. But if you've got something good to look at, you know, they, they've they got very direct connections with all the major film festivals, all the people that are looking to put films out there, all the representatives for various studios and whatnot. And so it can give you a, a direct line Um, to those opportunities. And and that's kind of the sort of opportunity that you're looking for if you're doing it on your own. So I I would say that maybe that would be the, the most valuable kind of a networking
1: aspect absolutely yeah okay yeah now, you said your films were garbage uh, in what way were they garbage I'm kind of curious I mean were they were they pretentious were they poorly made what I mean what when you're looking back and we all look back at our early works as, oh. with embarrassment what what, or, are, <laughs> yeah. I was what? Say, we should have paid um, <laughs> the districts
0: for our first year of teaching. right, 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 thousand, right, right. right. <laughs> so
1: what was it that you look back and, and don't like about your early films
2: uh they were uh, entirely self-important <laughs> um, they were poorly written. Um, the directing was not so great. Um, technically speaking, they were all right. you know they looked all right. the editing was all right. but you know the story was just not there. Like I just, I just didn't know how to tell a solid story that would be compelling. So that,
0: that was kind of where I was going because I'm glad Eric brought that up. So I mean it's like you could have the most expensive camera in the world, but if you don't have in your mind what makes a good shot, to take it with the camera really isn't worth as much as somebody that's got a great eye for what they should be taking a picture of, regardless of the technical aspects of the camera, or even
1: how to get somebody to feel the emotion you want them to feel at
0: that point. Right. Yeah. So the training and how to to write a good story. How, how did you how how have you grown in that, and what advice have you gotten over time to be bec- become a better storyteller?
2: Um. Well, I mean, it's one of those things where you just kind of refine it over time. A big part of it is editing. So, you know, when I when I was in high school, I would take Eric's computers that he had in the classroom, (laughs) say that I was going to work on, you know, yearbook (laughs) stuff, take it home. And really what I was doing was that was like the first time you could get nonlinear editing software. Um, for the average person, you know, it used to be at the time, if you wanted to edit at home or edit anywhere, you're looking at a quarter million dollar system. And now all of a sudden this is for the first time you could actually edit at home on a home computer. Right. So I do that. And none of my friends wanted to make movies. So I reedit, um, films that I thought were really crappy and make them watchable. And I would just do that on my own. And so what happened is I ended up having this strong skill set as an editor. Mm. Um, So by the time I graduated college, I'd been editing for six years and I could walk right into that position. So even though I went into it to be a director and producer, I went into it with a skill set and just became an editor by default. And so what that did for me is I... I saw everyone else's mistakes. I learned how to mm. put together mm. stories that someone else had already put together ah, and yeah. then I'd refine them. Right. And so that would work over time, but I've had mentors over the years, directors I've worked with um, one stand as uh, this guy who's an actor and director, Clifton Collins jr. And and he, I, I've done most of his music videos and learned a ton from him. We've worked on and off over the course of five years and, and he really gave me some chops and, and taught me story because he's been acting. He's been in like a hundred some big Hollywood movies and like he knows his craft. And so it's learning from that that I've, I think I've I really started to hone stuff in. And, and just over time, you know, especially teaching, I helped teach for two years post-production in Germany for documentary filmmaking. So, mm-hmm. you know, I think there's one thing if you if you go and teach, you really have to know what you're talking about beyond just being able to go and make a film. So I guess that's kind of brought me to to now.
1: And that's what you did for about 15 years, right? You edited other people's stuff. Yeah. yeah. And what made you decide you didn't want to do that anymore?
2: Um, well, <clears throat> for a long time, um, you know, I always just wanted to be a director, and I'd done little things here and there. But, you know, it seems like <laughs> – sounds a little macabre, but, like – Kind of my career development seemed to be truncated by death, uh, I guess. <laughs> um, but, um, you know, my dad passed away a couple of years back and we had a lot of really intense heart to hearts. And one of those things was like, you know, your time's running short. So, you know, y- if you're not doing what you want to do, what are you doing? And so that hit me pretty hard. And, and so that's why I just kind of dropped everything I was doing. Like, I'm not going to look for freelance edit work anymore. I'm just going to direct and produce. And that's what I did. And that's mm-hmm. what I've been doing.
1: And when it comes to that, uh, when you say freelance, you're mm-hmm. kind of working on a shoestring budget, right?
2: Uh, yeah, these days, yeah, I work with uh, whatever I can get. Man. So <laughs> how,
1: how do you how do you scare out money for projects? project? I mean, you were doing this independent investigative journalism thing, right? And mm-hmm. that was just all you, right? Yeah. This, so you weren't backed by anybody. This was you deciding to make a film on your own. Yeah. And then you've got the climbing film that you're working on. Yeah. Where do you get money for stuff like that?
2: Well, for, for the investigative thing, I did have a fiscal sponsor, the media working group. Um, mm-hmm. out of Portland and they're a really stellar uh, organization that, um, provides support and fiscal sponsorship, um, for independent documentaries. And, you know, they selected my project cause it was in line with what they were up to. Um, and, uh, but I, I, just, I was so nervous about what I was doing on that, that I just, I didn't feel comfortable going for grants and telling the whole world, like, you know, even though it was private, what I'm up to. So I just kind of suffered through that and just took a couple clients, uh, to make ends meet a little bit and, uh, got by just, you know, by friends and family supporting me. And then for the freed, um, uh, it's been entirely sponsors, um, who've mm. gotten behind it. And we've got about seven sponsors, um, some of which are locals. Like we've got, um, like, uh, Lithia Jeep, Scott Brewer of Lithia Jeep, uh, Paul Fish of Mountain Gear, Tim and Behan of Wild Walls, um, Chris Kopczynski of, uh, Cop construction. We've got some like non-monetary support from people like Jerry Dicker and uh the Bing, and then we've got a couple big sponsors like national climbing sponsors. We've got Maxim ropes, Evolve shoes and Oakley sunglasses. Hmm. And they, they have, um, you know, kicked in equipment and support and advertising and, you know, enough funds to get done what needs to get done and has gotten us by.
1: Now, is this something you have to do to like beat the pavement in order to get out and get those sponsorships or have they kind of come to you or has it been a little bit of both?
2: Oh no, it was definitely, um, it, it took me about 10 weeks um, to, to get everyone on board, 10, 12 weeks. And, so you're and just it,
1: hustling, selling your film the best you can.
2: Yep. And it's still going on. Like, I'm going to be doing that until the film is done um, in, you know, the spring.
0: Is this the type of thing where you're getting enough sponsorship to um, hire a team or have other people just. Right, than just you doing this project as you said you know that's a lot of a lot of work
2: yeah so we uh i've done you know the lion's share of the work on it thus far mm-hmm. um i've got a couple really killer team members um that are doing stuff on the back side I've, uh a talented woman who's um doing some co-producing stuff and taking care of some of the back end kind of legal kind of work on the producing side and then uh for camera work and some post-production work i have my you know kind of Uh, my mm, my mate and uh, kind of business partner in Portland. um, And he's doing a bunch of awesome stuff. And then we've got one other person who's doing some things in post. Um, But we definitely need to be hiring uh, a number of folks on the post-production side and a bunch of archival work that still needs to be done. And so we're hoping that uh, to cover that will be um, hopefully a successful Kickstarter that we'll be launching over the weekend um, that will... Ideally, get us what we need.
1: Right? Yeah, we're going to be talking about the weekend, but first yeah. we have to make sure that we uh, get all the stuff done we need to get done. Uh, you're listening to KYRS Medical Lake Spokane 88.1 and 92.3 FM. I'd like to uh, give a little shout out to Jukebox Jenny and play a promo for her show that comes on uh, Sunday nights. We got the blue-
0: Hang out with me, Jukebox Jenny, on Sundays from 6 to 8 p.m. to hear America's very own music, the blues. Let me help you shake the trouble out with a mix of funk, R&B, and blues from Delta to Chicago. You'll hear... Don't forget to shake your rump, too.
1: I'm living for the weekend.
0: It's a cocktail that will soothe the soul. Working Woman's Blues, Sunday nights, 6 to 8 p.m., right here on KYRS. Art Hour receives support from South Perry Pizza, featuring rotating local artists and serving hand-tossed artisan pizza, beer, and wine. That's at 1011 South Perry Street and online at southperrypizza.spokane or excuse me southperrypizza.spokane.com. And uh, I also
1: wanted to point out that KYRS relies on people like you uh, supporting them. And Art Hour. Relies on support from you as well. Just $3 a month keeps KYRS going strong, and you can help by texting GIVE KYRS. That's all one word, GIVE KYRS, to 44321. That's 44321. Also, uh, just if you are listening to the show and you like what you hear, we have all of our archived shows. This is show number 34 of the year. We have it on all, anywhere you find your podcasts, you can go to Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts podcast stitcher spotify anywhere and just search art hour and you'll find this show if you want to hear it again uh or any of our other shows perfect Uh, and we're back what what was the last thing we were talking about that we said we were going to ask after the break he was talking uh I don't remember. Uh, we were,
0: yeah, we're on, we were on the, your team members, and uh, we had just finished with that. Um, I
1: think we're talking about dough. That's what we
0: were talking yeah. about. We Talking How's about money. You, and how much does it cost to maybe do this production you're doing with Freed, or what do you what do you th- think you need to raise uh, just to have a you know a fighting chance of getting through it?
2: Well, so our Kickstarter, uh, we're we're going to be asking for uh, forty five grand. Um, about ten of that goes to kickstarter for fees as well as um fulfillment of rewards and all that stuff. Um so we're looking at, you know, between 30 and 35 grand. Um we need plus another maybe 10. So in total we're looking at about 45 to 50,000 bucks that we need to finish the film. Um and that's for all manner of things. It's, you know, the um shooting more interviews, um doing the final mix, uh the people we need to focus on scanning in thousands and thousands of slides. Like there there's one person alone whose archive is thirty-four thousand slides, My forty thousand slides, right? Jeez. Um so we've got a ton of archival work to do. Um plus we have like the sound mix, color correction, licensing of music, um there's things called title reports, errors and in emissions insurance. It, the list just goes on and mm. on. So you can kind of skate by and get a film shot for like Pretty low amounts of money, but once you get into post production and and delivery, um, things get a little little bananas. So, so
1: I, I wanted to talk about the the kind of the kickoff you have this weekend. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to make sure you get all that stuff on there. But so, let's say best case scenario: let's mm-hmm. say you get your money, you get your film made. What? what are your hopes for this movie? What will it end up? Where will it be? What will it look like when it's done? Who will see it and how, I mean, get on Netflix, get on Amazon prime, um, do something down at the Bing. What, what do you, what are you envisioning this to be when it's done?
2: Yeah. So uh, at a, at a bare minimum, um, we'll do a premiere here in town at a, a solid theater with, you know, really quality sound and screening experience. Um, and then, uh, We'll do a limited theatrical release um, nationally um, and limited, that. It's, you know, not like a bajillion
1: screens. Now, also, yeah. I is there sort of a subculture? I don't want to use that term. I don't like it. But is there a culture, like with Warren Miller ski films, is there a culture of climbing uh, maybe uh, festivals or something like that where you know yeah. it could kind of get on that mm-hmm. circuit?
2: Yeah, totally. So, you know, the, the, the festival circuits for climbing films and mountain films, pretty much all those deadlines uh, were all in the fall. And I was hoping to be done by then. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I was rather ambitious and wanted to produce a feature doc more or less on my own in in you know like four months and that was just kind of unreasonable um so i've, I've missed a lot of those deadlines so we'll, we'll probably go um just limited theatrical do our premiere here and then we'll go to either netflix or prime um for the release as well as like you know video on demand um and i have some friends at you know both places that hopefully should be willing to facilitate getting it out there. And so I'm pretty confident that, um, it will be, it will have a wide international release, uh, on a streaming platform that's visible and available for anyone, anywhere, um, either just before the Tokyo 2020 Olympics or just after. And, uh, if you guys don't know the, the 2020 summer Olympics is the first time that climbing has ever been in the Olympics and it's, it's kind of a a cool big deal. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So kind of on your, with the Freed documentary on the climbers, have you already interviewed some of the? I mean, I saw your trailer and you had John Roskelley there. I mean, you got some big name, world class climbers. Mm-hmm. Have you come across any stories already that you just go, oh, man, that's that's just pretty amazing? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so you should go watch the movie. <laughs> Check them out. Can,
1: can you give us a teaser? No. <laughs> 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 but pretty much the who's
2: who though of, of the spokane climbing community i mean really from from the get-go to to now um we have you know people who are quite representative i think um of every development that's happened along the way up to current and the current um men and women who are really you know keeping the standard alive and pushing the standard and and a new cool great things um yeah
0: so somebody like a john roscoe some of the 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 original i mean it's the godfather of climbing the older generation Mm -hmm. um though they do they have a feeling like this is a great way to start giving back and do they is there a lot of mentoring that's passed on down through generations and of climbers such as then to where you're at as a climber
2: Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it it is a long standing tradition uh, within climbing to have a mentorship structure um, where, you know, an older climber takes a younger climber under their wing, teaches them technique, takes them out, tells them the stories, shares the history. And for a long time, it was purely an oral tradition. Um, And then that got handed down um, and put into text by, you know, various historians who've written these various guides that have come out over the years. So, you know, Bob and Nancy Loomis made their guide with Nancy's illustrations and and Bob writing it and has all this story about who climbed what routes and all that. And then there's another guy, Jim Speaker, that made uh, a guide. There's another guide that's more about like the modern stuff. And that was written by Marty Bland. And that's really like really is kind of the most current of the, the the guides out there and then now there's mountain project which is an online um, thing that you can go and see what all the notes are about all the routes and as things have been updated that's kind of where it is but there's absolutely been this uh, longstanding tradition of handing down information and i feel like it's pretty pretty special that they've everyone's been willing to open up to me because there are things that are not in the guides that aren't online like for example one of these guys his archive that he's opened up to me is just I've gone through these photos and I'm seeing photos that, you know, have been published years ago and, you know, are like famous photos. And that's like one in thousands. And then you see all these other ones. And it's like, wow, that that's there's Jeff Lowe. There's there's Fred Becky. There's, you know, John and Chris, like when they were kids, like doing the first descent up whatever place and it's you're seeing these things that are just these priceless bits of history that, you know, if you don't put Them into a permanent record, then you know it could be lost to time, and that I think would just be a travesty. And so,
1: so in some senses, in many senses, Mm -hmm. your film is designed to be a history. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, but it's also designed to be a snapshot of what's going on right now, right? Correct. And what's what's the climbing community like now? I mean, uh, I I know you're probably going to say it's great and all that stuff, but I mean, as far as comparing it to other places, Mm -hmm. is this a pretty special place to be a climber? As
2: far as I understand. uh, it is um, you know there there might be in other places infighting between the different types of climbers you know the boulderers might not like the sport climbers and the sport climbers and trad climbers may not like each other trad climbers might not like the young kids climbing plastic in the gyms and all that and and I don't know enough about other climbing communities to to be able to make some blanket statement. But what I've heard from people as I've interviewed them over the last several months is very much that there is a very strong intermingling of all the various types mm. and disciplines of climbing here. Um, and, and I've witnessed that firsthand. And it's really cool to see. You know, of course, every community is going to have some amount of, you know, conflict, kind of di- conflict yeah, sure. disagreements or so whatever. But
0: yeah, I th- that's a great question. But I, you know, you said the um, 2020 Olympics, right? Mm-hmm. Rock climbing is going to be an Olympic uh, a sport, mm-hmm. and, and what is that? What are the parameters of that type of uh, climbing that they're going to be judged on, and what determines a winner? versus somebody that comes in fourth place, you know, standing on the podium versus not standing on the podium.
2: Sure. So uh, every athlete, every climber who's on the Olympic climbing team for their country has to perform in three different categories. So you have to be, you have to do speed climbing, you have to do bouldering, and you have to do sport climbing or lead climbing. Um, and speed climbing, obviously, is, you know, it's based on how fast you can climb a standardized route. Everyone climbs mm-hmm. the same route, and it's all about time. And then bouldering and uh, sport climbing, that's all about, you know, how far do you get on the route? And, you know, the further you get, the more points you get. And then it all adds up and gets averaged. And and that's, that's how you determine it. And there's been some kind of groaning about that format because speed climbing is not sport climbing and sport climbing is not bouldering. So to take a professional boulderer and that's really top shelf and force them to have to compete against a speed climber or a speed climber against a sport climber is kind of bananas and idiotic in my opinion, but whatever, it's in the Olympics and it's creating a new standardized way of measuring the, f- the full spectrum of your climbing abilities. So I get their logic there. Um, but it is really cool to see like all the people who are emerging as being really, really stand
1: out. Sure. So. But if you're probably chafing against the quantification of climbing, right? It's like there's there's a lot of beauty and ineffability to it that you just say, do we really need to put numbers on it? I mean, is there that aspect of what you're thinking about it?
2: Yeah, I don't know. Like, sure, some people sh- certainly <laughs> feel that way. Um, in my case, my my chafing about it is – Combining the three oh, disciplines mm-hmm. and forcing one person to have to do all three. Because most of the time, people who are pr- at the pro level, they're focusing on just one type. Mm-hmm. So right. there's
1: not a medal for all three separately. There's a medal for one where you have to do all three different events.
2: Yeah, you know, I'm actually not sure. So I was
0: that. thinking, like in gymnastics, you know, they have your all around right, right. gymnast, which encompasses how well you do on all of the different apparatus. And then they also have individual gold medals for each sure. apparatus. I was just curious if that was the same way for that like here's a gold medal for bouldering and for sport and speed but also an all-around gold medal for the person that can do all of those relatively well
2: you know that's a great question i'm not sure if it's separated out or if it's just a single one all i know is that to qualify you have to perform in all three Mm -hmm. at this point so how's the
0: training i'm just thinking of the old guard Mm. back in the day when we were training for these things and and now how much has like technology with equipment and training technique how has that evolved over the you know decades oh it's
2: <laughs> massively you know I think the big the big difference from a technology standpoint is that the equipment is lighter um, it's safer it's more durable um, and it can give you protection in places that you couldn't get protection before and then you know in the last what 25 35 years you've had what's called sticky rubber come out so like your shoes stick to the face better right Mm -hmm. um so you have all this technology that's newer lighter better stronger faster and so that obviously increases the standard and the potential for what you can climb as far as training's concerned um i think the big difference is you still have people doing really like wild things to train you know some people will fill up their backpacks and just hike down the bluff and fill up you know jugs of water at in the stream and then carry them back up the hill and just go up and down and up and down and then go and have their climbing sessions in the evening you know there's other guys who are ice climbers apparently that will walk around with snowballs in their bare hands like all day, they'll just walk around with snowballs so they can like train themselves to be tough against the cold, you know. And then like everyone seems to have their own thing, but one one thing that I've seen more so than maybe in the past is really dialing in, um, uh, kind of. I don't know how you what you would call it more of a a math minded approach, you know. You'll go and and have your strength of your forearms tested like how much grip strength Mm -hmm. can you put at different angles and based on that and your nutrition and and what you're doing like you should be doing exactly this many routes a day at this level with this much weight you need to do this this and this and have a laundry list every single day and that's what you do and there are people that you go and get evaluated and you pay them a monthly fee and they monitor your training for you um and as long as you just do what they're saying supposedly you'll you know get to that next level and so i'd say that's a major change because that wasn't there when I was younger.
0: I, I don't know if you knew a guy named Greg Ritchie. He d- mm-hmm. he does a lot of just camera work, you know, just filming sport sporting events here in Spokane. But he's also climbed some of the big mountains, you know, like K2 and some of those. And he said when he trained, he just uh, would go up to Mount Rainier and just hike up to the summit and back. I mean, and, and do that frequently. Just <laughs> thinking, you know, maybe that there's something to old school. But I also think just with all the other sports, they're, they're down to the, the math part of it, like you're talking about, you know, recovery time, sleep time, even down to, like, type of underwear you wear so that you can recover faster. For sure. Yeah.
1: Hey, speaking of filming sports, as you were talking about, uh, there's been kind of a, I don't know, I don't want to say a lot of climbing movies have come out, but it seems like with Free Solo and Meru and movies like that, is there one particular movie that you thought stood out as one of the better climbing movies that have come out recently?
2: Well, yeah, I mean, Free Solo is really quite uh, exceptional. Meru as well is really... Meru's cinematography um, is just kind of jaw-dropping to me more so than Free Solo. (laughs) In what way? Um, It's unflinching. I mean, the stuff of Renan Ozturk, um, while he's on a gurney after his awful accident, and they're just sitting there filming him, and like he's on death's doorstep, and the camera's unflinching. And I that takes such a level um, a huge level of courage that I just like, I don't know how I would deal in that situation. Um, I've been filming and and been sitting there and see a rock in my trailer. I've got a shot of a rock, like flying down and uh, hitting this female cl- climber. Uh, Destiny Godby just gets clocked on the head with a softball sized chunk of cool. granite. And I, as soon as I realized what happened, I stopped rolling. and I was like, Hey, are you okay? And, <laughs> and then I see films like this where they're, they keep rolling. Mm-hmm. They don't stop. I mean, they're still asking, are you okay? But like that takes a special mm-hmm. discipline that I still have to practice to mm-hmm. be okay with. But I would say that the one film though, that has really got me going more than any other climbing film. Um, it came out some years ago, uh, but it's called Valley Uprising. Mm. And it's, it's about the history of Yosemite Valley. And in many ways it touches on, um, similar things that I'm touching on in my film and what's fun is that while they're talking about what's happening in yosemite valley i'm talking about what's happening in spokane but a lot of the stuff during the golden age of climbing was happening at the same time you know john and chris and bob they were all going down and hanging out with pe- people like peter croft and ron Kalk in the 80s and and bringing the stuff that they learned from those guys and bringing it back to spokane and applying it here and so there's kind of like this dialogic growth thing going on where what's happening there is happening here just a teeny bit later um so i don't know i love that film
1: Right on. I, I haven't heard of it or seen it, but I will check it out. I love watching climbing films, but I end up um, basically in the fetal position the whole time because <laughs> I'm so nervous. <laughs> uh, so speaking of films, how, how much do you still have left to do on your movie? I mean, is, is principal f- shooting done or do you have a lot more of that stuff to do? Are you mostly in post-production? Where are you in the process?
2: Uh, so we've got about 20 more interviews to shoot. Um, we've shot a ton. Uh, I think we've done about uh, 14 interviews at this point. Um, pretty much all of the outdoor climbing um, that we want in the mm-hmm. film uh, has been shot. Um, so we've got interviews to do, archival work to do. We need to talk with um, some of the, the like library-type archives, not personal archives, mm-hmm. at some of the institutions in town. Um, and then, yeah, just post-production. So the plan is that the bulk of the film will be completed, um, post-production, everything by the end of February. Um, and then we'll start looking at... Um, you know pre streaming release options and uh and then we'll uh at the latest uh do the premiere in June
1: right on yeah. and you're doing it all here now, right you're you're here full time
2: yeah, yeah, so mm-hmm. you know for the last eight months, I was going back and forth between Portland and Spokane um, and just kind of doing stuff both places, but then it just kind of made sense because of this film and th- my next film, which is based out of spokane, um, and all my other work is location agnostic, so I was just like well why don't I just move here? So I went and got a place up on the South Hill and moved here about a month ago. So yeah. now. Did you move here
1: for the expense or were there other reasons? Oh, All
2: sorts of reasons. I mean, one, I wanted to be here closer to family, um, way cheaper. The cost of living is like, I mean, I looked at the, basically I was living in a two bedroom apartment uh, in Portland and it was pretty sweet spot. Um, And, uh, but then my landlord decided to sell the place and Mm. I was looking at, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, what it would cost to move here. And I found a, a house and a yard and (laughs) like basement and loft and all that for like thirty bucks more a month. Then I was like, okay, all my work's here, family's here, cheaper, better cost of you know, quality of life and cost of living and plus all the climbing is here and I've gotten to know the the Spokane climbing community really well now as an adult. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm I'm lucky enough to call a bunch of those people my friends and like I go climbing with them and it's I just want to be around them and hang out. So kind of got Kind of got some some family and fun here. So. Right on.
1: Well, we ask a lot of people this, too. People who uh, grew up here, then leave, and then come back. Uh, what have you noticed being the biggest change in Spokane from when you lived here, before you went to college, and when you live here now?
2: Mm. Uh, I think the biggest change is is in me um, being able to appreciate um, what I didn't appreciate as a kid. Um, the The tight-knit community here is just absolutely wonderful um there are so many opportunities of course it Spokane has grown artistically there are Mm -hmm. new restaurants you know new places to go out there's you know more climbing opportunities like it's it's Spokane has grown and really come into its own in the last you know 20 years 18 years for sure but I think the biggest part for me is just realizing like how good I had it as a kid. Mm -hmm. And it just kind of, Spokane kind of sucked as a teenager. It it did. But that's that's because (laughs) like, you know, I was a a teenager. I was a little um, turd. You, um, and were. I just didn't appreciate it. Yeah. You
1: know? when, now, when you yeah. said community, I'm assuming that the first thing you think about is climbing community. Have you found a film community here too that you can be a part of? Is that is that a thing that's going on here? Because I, I don't know. Is there a documentary community or a film community that that is 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 here that we don't know about?
2: That I don't know. I mean, I know there's I know there's stuff going on in pockets. Like I know North by Northwest mm-hmm. is is doing their thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I know Hamilton Studios is doing their thing Um, and I know there's kind of like there's some ad agencies in town and some, you know, kids that are looking to do stuff here and there. But as far as a community is concerned, I'm sure one's there, but I have not haven't found it. yet. I haven't found it yet. But so when I'm talking about community, I'm talking about um, climbing community family friends, you know, the people that I grew up knowing and are still here or have returned on their own and have kids. So
1: yeah. And you mentioned in your previous answer that you you said this movie and your next movie are location agnostic. Uh, is the next movie the one that you were talking about before that was an independent investigation? Well, what's hmm. your movie? What's your next movie? Or can you not tell, tell us that? that? <laughs> <laughs> we, we chatted about that a little bit. Oh, okay, yeah. okay. Yeah. Yeah, was not part of this conversation. Yeah, that's not that, part of it. <laughs> yeah.
2: yeah, yeah. That one. Um, what can I tell you? I can't tell you a whole lot, but what I can tell you is that you know it's. Um, so my other work is location agnostic. That's that's what I meant earlier. Um, but mm. this one is is definitely it's based out of Spokane. It's it's about. Um, it's uh, about an aspect of climbing, and we've got some world-class climbers in it who are going to be doing some pretty amazing stuff that no one's ever done before. And uh, we have the support of um, uh, a number of really top-shelf sponsors as well for it. Um, and we'll be shooting that um, sometime in the spring, and that's mm. about it. I was, I was
0: going to say, you, you brought up Warren Miller earlier in the, this conversation. Uh, Mike, do you see yourself kind of doing a series of documentaries or other kind of story formats around climbing? Or do you see yourself branching out into other subject matter?
2: Uh, Both. So I definitely plan on, um, I'd like to see one or two climbing, I'd like to produce one or two climbing films a year, um, just going forward. Um, Some of them may be short form, some of them may be features. And I'd like to have Kind of a a, a Spokane-centered um, or at least Spokane-based um, thing, very similar to what you guys are calling the Warren Miller films. Mm-hmm. Or in the climbing world, we have what's called real rock, and mm-hmm. it's a series of films made every year um, by a, a company um, uh, called Sender Films and uh, and some other folks. Kind of, it's a little collaboration, and and their films, everyone gets really excited about, you know, and they're they're stellar, and they're kind of the The standard. I mean, they're like, I guess what you know, you guys would call the the Warren Millers of of rock climbing. Mm -hmm. But I'd like to start doing that, you know, in Spokane. I mean, you really look at the majority of climbing films that are out there are made by a a small pantheon uh, of filmmakers. Um, And then there are these outliers. Every once in a while there will be a climbing film made by someone that no one's heard of. And you're talking with, you know, famous people. But it's it's really a tight-knit community, and not a lot of people are breaking out of that. So I'd like to show people what I got. Yeah, and do something different.
0: And then, are you connected with this group to any other um, types of communities, like say, in internationally, like in Europe, or rock climbers that are in different parts of the world? Is that is the community that tight knit? You know, where I'm just trying to think of other types of things. Where, yeah, I know the soccer players, you know, in Europe as well as I know everybody knows kind of the the go to people in the sport itself.
2: Yeah, I think there, there definitely is, you know, Americans know what's going on in Europe and vice versa for sure. Um, so there is that crossover and, and definitely I look forward to, you know, sharing our projects in Europe and, um, certainly in Germany and Italy and into Austria. And, uh, cause I have some connections there from living there uh, before. And I know that those communities are really interested in what we're doing. Mm-hmm. So, yeah.
1: Now I know when you were talking to the Lewis and Clark students, they were kind of interested. Um, and I don't want to dwell on this too much but they were interested in going back to uh the stuff that you had worked on when you were an editor because you were in la and you were working on some some big time stuff uh is there something that while you were editing and i guess it's kind of a two-part question is there something that you were doing at that time in a particular project that you felt taught you a lot and was there something that you feel the most proud of that you were working on during that time
2: all right yeah you know there was one project <laughs> in particular that's kind of like the the one that's more of a standout that i think uh, a lot of people have seen uh, i know a lot of people have seen uh and it's the the first two music videos for the zach brown band mm. um, that mm. they ever did and it was chicken fried and whatever it is <laughs> <laughs> so like everyone's heard that song <laughs> dude. and and that was basically my buddy clifton collins jr um directed it and this other guy sam macaroni was the assistant director and uh, basically those two guys went off in, into the boonies um, at, in like Smyrna, Georgia and just hung out with Zach for like three days and shot this thing and came back. And then I sat in a room for like two weeks and edited nonstop um, with those two guys sitting there. And uh, <laughs> and then the, the video came out and it was like, I don't know, it was we broke all previous records. No, no music video had ever been number one on CMT ever in history. Uh, for that long and like we got best breakout video of the year at the cmt awards mm-hmm. um and that was all pretty bananas like got flown around the country for parties to like celebrate all this i mean and then you know within a couple of months we had something like 200 some million views and like they were the number one band like total breakout across the board and that, that was a wild time and now i hear that song I can hear the first two notes of it. I'm just like grown. Uh, <laughs> Flashbacks, I, PTSD. <laughs> totally. Do. You know, I, I love Zach and Cliff, but like I've, I've heard that song once many sure, times for two weeks straight. Yeah. But that, that's definitely like that. That's a standout. And I'd say that one. And then there's a, a film that I colored in 2013. Um, and it was a relationship I built, um, with, uh, the, the producer while I was at the post house that I worked on the Zach, uh, videos, um, and it's a surfing documentary called Isolated. And I'm not sure if it's on Netflix anymore. It was for a hmm. long time. But it's basically about a bunch of feral surfers that go to um, Papua New Guinea um, to, to just surf, find unsurfed waves in the middle of nowhere. And these guys stumble upon an act of genocide that was going on that was being driven by, um, uh, by the adjoining um, government and uh, being funded by some American mining companies. And so the film ended up Mm -hmm. becoming a way to give a voice to these indigenous people who were in the process of being murdered. And it was like the most attention that these people had gotten in the mainstream um, for this. And so the film kind of served as a way to like get the UN to get up and make a statement to bring more pressure towards the the, uh, West Papuan freedom movement. And so that was just really cool that I could have a hand in supporting them and and making it more accessible just by making it look
1: more pretty. That's amazing. Yeah. That's yeah. really cool. Yeah. Uh, yeah. We don't have too much time left. Did you have a question that you wanted to ask first? Uh, no, I think uh, it
0: would it would go off. too yeah. Long, yeah. So, but, but yeah, the main thing
1: ahead. I want to get to now is you've got yeah. a big weekend coming up. Yep. Mm-hmm. So tell us what's coming up this weekend. What what you're doing. What you hope to have happen with what's going on.
2: Well, uh, we're we're going to be launching our Kickstarter and our social media stuff. Uh, we've submitted our stuff our stuff to Kickstarter, and it takes them a few days to decide whether or not the, they think we're a legitimate effort. Mm-hmm. I don't see a problem with that. So, you know, hopefully, as soon as they're they're happy with it, we'll be able to put that live. But regardless of what they decide to to say or when they decide to say it's a thumbs up we will be launching our social media content uh over the weekend and then stuff will start going forward from there so on uh facebook and instagram uh it's the freed film and the website's the freedfilm.com and you know as soon as Kickstarter's ready to go you know if you go to the freedfilm.com i'll take you to the kickstarter and you can see the trailer for the film and and you know basically everything you could possibly want to know about you know what the plan is who who i am who my team
1: is and Right we're to do so it's forward. F-R-E-E-D, the Freed. Correct. Now, I don't know what that title refers to. What does that refer to?
2: Okay, so uh, back in the day, a lot of the climbing that was going on was aid climbing. So you'd climb your equipment. Oh. You'd climb with the aid of your mm-hmm. equipment, right? Mm. Um, and then during the... You know, 60s on forward, there was this big movement to start free climbing and free climbing would be you're you're just climbing the rock. You're leaving behind protection, but you're not relying. You're not hanging on your protection. Right. To move up a crack. You're just climbing and leaving behind stuff. So if you fall, you don't die. Um, And so if you climbed a route that had been aid climb before and you're the first person to climb it to free climb it, it would be said that I freed this route like I freed the dihedral at Minnehaha or mm. I, I freed the nose of El Capitan. Right. And so that, but there's also uh, kind of a, a double meaning there is that there's a lot of um, people finding freedom in, in mm-hmm. this and confronting their fears, confronting the challenge of the sport um, and just feeling. Untethered and and free to do their thing, right? So there's so there's both meanings. It's about the routes that have been freed, it's about people feeling like they are free. Um, so there you go.
0: And for you, what does it do for you?
2: Climbing, Climbing. or filming? Yeah. Climbing. Uh man, it, it it um it helps me focus, really.
0: And does that help you with your filming?
2: It helps me in every aspect of my life. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Creatively, um, professionally, health-wise, it just helps me stay focused and, and feel um, as good as I can about life and just wanting to be a better person, man.
0: And just probably take a second to answer this. If somebody was interested in learning how to rock climb here in Spokane, a student or anything, where would, how, what's the best way for them to get in contact with the right people?
2: I would say go and take a class. Just go take an intro class. You could take it at Wild Walls or you could go to Mountain Gear or you could go to the Blockyard. yard. Um, just take a basic class or like if you really want to jump into it, um, check out the, uh, the BCC, the Bauer Climbing Coalition, and reach out to someone with them. They're, they're kind of like the unifying body of uh, advocates for the Spokane
1: climbing community and they do great things. Awesome. Man. Hey, Mike, thanks for coming in. It's always fun talking to you. Yeah, you it's good seeing you. And hey, uh, so much good luck on your Kickstarter and on finishing your movie. Appreciate it. Thanks for having yeah. me.
0: Great having you, Mark.